Well, greetings from the saints in Fremont, just down the freeway there. Uh, glad that you're with us here. You need that? Or that needs to be up there. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. All right. All right. Well, uh, welcome. Thanks for being with us this morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah chapter 33, verses 1 and 2. And I want to talk to you this morning about taking a punch. Taking a punch. So let's stand together, and we're going to read, read the Word of God together. Um, Jared, do you have Bibles to pass out to anybody who needs So if you need a Bible, raise your hand up, and uh, uh, the usher, ushers will get a Bible to you if you didn't bring one with you. Isaiah chapter 33, verse 1. Woe to you, O destroyer, while you were not destroyed, and he who is treacherous while others did not deal treacherously with him. As soon as you finish destroying, you will be destroyed. And as soon as you cease to deal treacherously, others will deal treacherously with you. O oh Lord, be gracious to us. We've waited for you. Be their strength every morning, our salvation also in the time of distress. So Father, as we look at this this morning, we pray your blessing upon the reading and the teaching of your word, and we pray that we might have an ear to hear uh, what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church. And Father, as the saints gather in Fremont, as uh, Caleb brings the word this morning, Father, we pray your hand, your blessing there. Uh, God, give him the wherewithal to speak as he would speak, and Father, may you give them ears to hear. We pray and ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. One of the most important things a boxer can learn is how to take a punch. Because if a boxer climbs into the ring, it's not a matter if he's going to take a hit. It's a matter of when he's going to take a hit. And that boxer has to learn how to, how to take the punch, how to take the hit. And so he's taught to keep his jaw clenched and his chin down and his shoulders up and to roll with the punches and bob and weave and all that kind of stuff. And in our passage here, uh, King Hezekiah and the nation of Judah, they're going to take a huge punch from the kingdom of Assyria and King Sennacherib. And Hezekiah and Judah are going to learn how to, t are going to, learn how to take a punch, because they're going to take a punch. And all of us, we're in the ring of life. And if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, the world, the flesh, and the devil has fists of fury, and they're coming at you constantly, every day. Probably some of you are beat up this morning from being knocked on the chin by the world, the flesh, and the devil this week. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you have to learn how to take a punch. Because it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. You know, and boxers are taught how to, you know, dodge punches and how to block punches. And it's good if you can dodge it. It's good if you can block it. But you're going to get hit. And so how important it is that we as believers learn how to take a punch from the world of flesh and the devil and learn how to bounce back from that. Now, the historical background of our passage is that when King Hezekiah became the king of Judah, he rebelled against the Assyrian Empire. Assyria was the elephant in the world at that time, and all of the nations had to pay tribute 
to the king of Assyria. And so King Hezekiah, when he became king, he said, no, I don't think so. And so he rebelled against the, uh, the king of Assyria and the kingdom of Assyria. In the fourth year of Hezekiah, Shalmaneser of Assyria, he came down and he took the ten northern tribes. He took Israel into captivity. And this really shook King Hezekiah. And so he uh, sought to make an alliance with Egypt uh, to protect them from the Assyrian Empire. Isaiah said, don't do that. Don't trust in Egypt. Don't send your envoys down there. Don't have any kind of diplomatic relationships whatsoever with Egypt. But uh, King Hezekiah said, "Uh, I don't think so, Isaiah. I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. It just makes good geopolitical, you know, uh, military sense for us to do so. I really don't think God has our back. We need Egypt on our side. And so he made this alliance with Egypt. Then in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, uh, King Sennacherib of Assyria, he came down and he put the kibosh on uh, King Hezekiah and Judah. And support from Egypt didn't materialize, even though Pharaoh had promised, we're going to, you know, we're part of this NATO thing, you know, if you're attacked, we're going to defend you. Uh, it didn't, it didn't happen. And so King Hezekiah saw that he was in a real fix. And so he humbled himself before King Sennacherib there, yeah, and um, said, I've done wrong in rebelling against you. Whatever you impose on me, I'll pay it. And so King Sennacherib said, okay, pay me $5 million in silver and $32 million in gold. And that was basically today's uh, uh, sums for that. And so King Hezekiah had to do that. He even had to strip the gold from the temple in order to pay off King Sennacherib so he would go away. But the problem was is that King Sennacherib didn't go away. He then, after he promised to go away, he then demanded the surrender of Jerusalem. And so uh, in, in our story here, uh, the King Sennacherib, he punched King Hezekiah really hard. Uh, just, just let him have it right there on the jaw, and he wasn't, he wasn't ready for that. And so in our passage here, Hezekiah is going to learn how to take a punch. Now, if you look at um, verse 1, it says, Woe to you, O destroyer. That's Assyria. That's King Sennacherib. While you were not destroyed, and he who is treacherous, again, that's Sennacherib in Assyria, um, while others did not deal treacherously with him. But as soon as uh, you finish destroying, you are going to be uh, destroyed. And so uh, the destroyer, the treacherous one here is uh, Assyria and King Sennacherib. They were paid off to go away, but they didn't turn away. They dealt treacherously with Hezekiah and with Judah, and now they demand the surrender of Jerusalem. And so God used wicked Assyria to discipline disobedient Israel. God used wicked Assyria to to, to discipline uh, disobedient uh, Judah. Now, this whole philosophical, theological conundrum of God using the wicked to discipline the righteous, that's what the book of Habakkuk is all about. That's what he struggles with in those three chapters. And that's the main presenting problem. In fact, that's the only problem in the book of Habakkuk and how Habakkuk has to wrap his mind around the ways of God. So, 
Can God use evil to bring about his purposes? The Bible says yes. Has God used evil to bring about his purposes? Just look at Calvary. Look at, look at the very seed of Christianity, the very foundation of it. God used evil to bring about his purposes. Will God use evil in your life to bring about its purposes? Yeah, the answer, the answer is yes. Uh, you are in the ring of life, which means this, you're going to take a punch and destruction is going to come your way. The word destruction here in the Hebrew carries the, eye of, the, carries the idea of being despoiled, of being devastated, of being ruined, to have something you value violently stripped from you. Think of Job. Do you think Job valued his, his, his health? I think so. That was stripped from him. Do you think he valued his servants? Yes, they were taken from him. Did he value his family, his kids? Yes, they were stripped from him. Did he value his, his wealth taken from him? Did he value his reputation? Everything he valued, everything that was dear for, to him was stripped from him by Satan. Now, we know that God was behind it. God allowed it. I think all of our troubles like that are filtered by God. There's a first verse in 1 John 5 something. It says that the evil one cannot touch you. And in the Greek word, there's a physical touch. And I've had believers tell me before that Satan slapped a cancer on them or Satan gave them COVID. And I'll bring up the verse out of 1 John chapter 5. Satan can't touch you. And, and that means a literal, physical touch. And I take the Bible literally. And actually, he cannot touch you. And, and it makes him mad that Satan can't touch him. It should fill us with joy that, that Satan can't do anything to you unless it's filtered through the Father. Jesus said, Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now, we'd like Jesus to say, but I told him to go, you know, bite dust. But Jesus didn't say that. He goes, I prayed for you uh, because he's going to be allowed. He's going to be allowed to, to tempt you and to try you and sift you like wheat. But I pray for you. So Satan, uh, uh, God can, he has, and he will use evil in your life to bring about his purposes. God allowed Job to be despoiled. He allowed uh, Job to have things stripped from him which he valued. Did Job deserve what he suffered? No. Job 1.1. There was a man in the land of Uz who was blameless, upright, and fearing God. I mean, the Bible's own testimony to Job is that he was blameless, Later on, God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, who's blameless? And I've read some stuff where Job did deserve what he got. He wasn't blameless. But if God says he's blameless, and you say he's blameworthy, guess who I'm going to believe? God, he, was, he did not, the whole point is he didn't deserve what he got. But it came to him anyway. Did Joseph deserve to be hated by his brother, sold into slavery, um, un, un, unjustly accused of, of sexual assault, thrown into dungeon, forgotten there for years and years. Did he deserve that? Was there something 
uh, there's some sin, when there's some maladaptive character within him that invited that into his life. No, he didn't deserve it. Did Daniel deserve what came his way? The suffering that he had to endure and persevere. You know, in, in my mind, um, the three purest characters in the Old Testament are um, uh, Jonathan, you know, Saul's son. He was, he's just willing to give his throne off to, to, king, to David to be king. Uh, to me, he's a beautiful, beautiful man that way. And I see Daniel and Joseph as being three of the purest men in the Old Testament. And yet their lives were touched by so much suffering, so much sorrow, so, much, so many things they had to endure for the kingdom's sake. They didn't deserve any of it. They were stripped of so much, and yet uh, God used that in their lives. And so I, I, did Jesus deserve the cross? Well, of course, we know that he didn't deserve the cross, but God used it to bring about his purposes. God used the evil in Job's life. God used the evil in Daniel's life. God used the evil in Joseph's life to bring about his purposes. And so when evil touches you, when you go through trial, trouble, and tribulation, God can, God has, and God will use that for his purposes. And we'll see how we're supposed to take that punch just a little bit later on. So God will take the evil, the trials, the tribulations, the brokenness, all of those things that you experience, and he'll use it uh, for, his, for his purposes. Now, the bulk of time, of the time, uh, we can say, I don't know, how can God use my, my debt? How can God use my divorce? How can God use my depression to bring about his purposes? And since we can't see it in our mind's eye, since we can't reason it out, we shy away from believing it. Because we'll trust God as far as we understand God. We'll trust God as far as we understand what's unfolding in our life. But here's the thing of faith. Even though I can't see what God is doing, even though I don't understand it, I'm going to believe God. You know, there's a couple of high points in the book of Job out of the first two chapters. I think my favorite verse in the Bible, if you can have one, is Job 13, 15. It says, um, it's really good. Job says, um, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he slay me. And the thing is this, I know that God's not out to slay me. He's out to bless me. He promises that so many times in the Bible, in Christ, God is out to bless me. So here's what Job says. Even though everything in my life goes against what I know to be the intention of God for me, I'm still going to believe God. That's faith. But if you can only trust God as far as you understand him, you're not going to get past one o'clock this afternoon. But there's stuff happening in your lives right now. You have no idea how God can use it for his glory. Just like Joseph, Daniel, even Jesus, uh, Job. And yet, if you look at the end of their faith, God planted them in the Bible for you and for me. God can take all of that stuff and he can use it uh, in your life. So you're in, you're in the ring of life. You're going to take a punch. And even as destruction 
will come your way. Treacherous, treachery will come your way also. The idea there behind the word treachery is to be faithless, to break faith, and the idea of betrayal. See, Judah thought, uh, King Hezekiah thought, that Assyria would go away after they were paid off. But they acted deceitfully. They, tre- they acted treacherously, treacherously. And they came down and they demanded the, uh, the surrender of, of Jerusalem. Egypt promised to help Judah against the Assyrian Empire, against the Assyrian advance. But the help from Egypt never materialized. They were betrayed by Egypt. And you've had people betray you. You've had people break faith in your life. Now we just, we're still kind of at the tail end of COVID. And there's probably not one person in this life who wasn't touched, not just f- physically and, 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 and um, uh, medically by, by COVID. I don't mean just getting COVID yourself, but the mask and the vaccination, all that stuff. But you've probably lost friends. There were probably people who left this church because of COVID. And there's probably some people in here, your brothers and your sisters, your biological brothers and sisters won't talk to you anymore. There there was so much disruption of relationship in the church and outside of the church through COVID. Um, I'm, I'm a pastor, and I felt sorry for pastors during COVID because no matter what decision we made, there was someone to take issue with it. There's always someone to be offended. You know, oh, you're requiring masks. Oh, I can't believe that. You know, you need to be, don't be a coward and stand up. Or you're not, you're not requiring masks. Why do you hate the community? And why do you hate people? I'm not going to this church anymore. It was lose-lose. No matter what, no matter what decision a pastor made, it, it was a lose-lose. Every church, every church in America had someone leave it and had someone, some people come to it because of COVID. It was an incredible time of disruption. And when you think of 2020, it was the perfect storm. First of all, you had the medical pandemic with COVID. Then you had the social pandemonium with the George Floyd murder and all of the, uh, the, uh, the uh, upheaval in the streets. And then you had the political partisanship with Trump and Biden. And it's going to come pretty soon, uh, the emails that came back then. If you, if you vote for Trump, you're not a Christian. If you don't vote for Trump, you're not a Christian. And then whoever the Democratic uh, candidate, maybe it's going to be President Biden again, you know. Uh, if you vote for him, you're not a Christian. If you don't vote for him, you're not a Christian. It's going to all start up again, all this incredible foolishness in the body of Christ. And there's going to be further and further divisions. Because it's no longer a matter of what your theology is. What matters most is your ideology. And the church is beginning to gather around ideology, not theology. And there's division in the church. I think for me, the greatest loss that I saw in the church of COVID is the lack of love in the church. It amazed me how quickly people turned upon one another and how vicious they were towards one another. And I, there's probably no one that, that didn't feel betrayed uh, in, in one way or another, some more intensely, more personally uh, than others. But the season of COVID that we've just gone through uh, disrupted much in churches and in families. There's been betrayal, 
Some of you have been touched by betrayal, divorce, economic difficulties. There's problems at home, at work, in the extended family, and in church. And we've all experienced some form of treacher, treachery, some form of betrayal and loss of faith. Uh, sometimes as the result of your own sin, uh, possibly as the result of the sin of others against you. And, you know, sometimes just life happens. And I want to blame somebody, but I can't. You know, uh, I, ha I have a spiritual gift. We're told that you can discover your spiritual gift by uh, what you enjoy doing and what you do well. So I discovered my spiritual gift. It's judging others. <laughs> I really enjoy doing it, and I'm really good at it. <laughs> so uh, it's so easy, isn't it, to fall into that? And I think everybody probably has that, that spiritual gift. Uh, you know, but there's just some stuff that happens. Even though I want to blame someone, I want to judge someone, I, I can't trace it to a source. I can't trace it to a person. I can't tr trace it to an event or to a situation. Just life happens and stuff blows up around us. And so all of us have had destruction touch our lives. We've all had treachery uh, touch our lives, like we're told there in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 33. And um, we know that you're in the ring of life, and you're going to get punched. And since destruction and treachery, those fists of fury are always coming your way, how do you take a punch? And now listen, listen. If you pay heed to, to what I'm going to tell you now, and we're going to move into verse 2. If, as you pay heed to this, the Lord will give you beauty for ashes. He will give you the oil of joy for mourning. There's some of you right now, you're smiling on the outside, but inside you're mourning, and you long for the oil of joy. On the uh, outside, you're beautiful. On the inside, there's ashes. And the Lord wants to give you beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. But some of you, you're stuck in verse 1. And until you can get out of verse 1 into verse 2, the punch that laid you out is going to continue to lay you out. And the punches that continue to come in your life from the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're, they're going to continue to lay you out. And so I believe the Lord wants to take us from verse 1 into verse 2. Check out verse 2. O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. And so here, all this destruction is coming my way. All of this treachery is coming my way in verse 1. Uh, even as uh, Sennacherib of Assyria sought to lay out Hezekiah and Judah, the world of flesh and the devil are seeking to lay you out. But Isaiah finally made it to, to verse 2, where he's seeking God, and he's looking to God, and he's calling upon God, not just for himself, but for Israel too. And so verse 2 tells us how to take a punch, how to take a punch. And uh, what I'd like to draw out of this, first of all, is to look up. He looks up to God in verse 2. Oh, Lord, be gracious to us. In verse 1, he's looking around at, at, the, at the geopolitical scene at the empires on the march and the armies that are on the move. But in verse 2, he looks up. This is the first way to take, a, to take a punch. Look up. Worship God. You stand up to evil. 
by bowing down to God. You stand up to evil by bowing down to God. Not by, first of all, going to the voting booth or grabbing the poster and protesting this or that or writing your congressman or boycotting this or that person. You stand up to evil by bowing down to God. We sang that song this morning. Um, and when I fight, I'll fight on my knees. You stand, you fight. You think when you fight, you're going to rise to your feet and, you know, slash your sword and all that kind of stuff. Or your Uzi. I prefer that to the, to the sword. But uh, here, here it's, you, you stand up to evil by bowing down to God. And King Hezekiah, I don't have time to tell you the story here. King Hezekiah stood up to King Sennacherib when he bowed down to God. Uh, King Sennacherib sent him this letter that said, basically, you're toast. And Hezekiah, he, he took this letter and he says he laid it out before God. He said, look what your enemies are saying about you, God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look to you. And that night, God sent an angel and he killed 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army. And Sennacherib hightailed it back to Assyria. He says there in verse 1, the last half, as soon as you finish destroying, as soon as I'm done with you, Assyria, as soon as you accomplish my purposes, I'm going to destroy you. And I'm going to deal treacherously with you. Whenever you're done handing out that, that portion of discipline to my people that I've ordained, you want to go further. You want to destroy them. I just sent you to discipline them. But you do not so intend. But after you are done disciplining them, I'm going to stop you from destroying them. And I'm going to destroy you. And in one night, 185,000 uh, Assyrian soldiers. Because Hezekiah, he bowed down to God. He tried to stand up to Assyria before by making an, Egyptian, uh, an alliance with the Egyptians. And there's quite a few chapters where God says, don't, don't do that. Uh, but Hezekiah went and did it anyway. But now he bows down before the Lord. Keep your place here in Isaiah 33 and turn to James. James over there in the New Testament after the book of Hebrews. James chapter 4, verse 7. Because James says uh, the identical thing. He says the identical thing here. James 4, verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How, how do you resist the devil? You bow down to God. How do you stand up to the devil? You bow down to God. You know, some of you need to do that before you leave this place this morning. You're, you're standing up to the devil by standing up to the devil and not bowing down to God. Well, that makes no sense. I don't know what that means to bow down to God. You know, I don't get it either. I know it works. You know, I just know it works. And, and here's how it works for me. I can, I can have some things unfolding in my life, and um, I, I can go before the Lord. I can either bow, I can sit, I can raise my hands. And I can say, Lord, I have no idea how you're going to use this for your glory. 
Because on the outside, Lord, it looks like this is for destruction, is for treachery. I have no idea how you're going to use this cross to further your work in my life. But I know you've done it again and again and again. Not just in my life. Not just in the lives of my friends that I know, what's going on with them. But I see it in the Bible again and again and again. And I, I, I choose not to trust the evidence of my own eyes, but I choose to believe your word. I'm not going to walk by faith. I, I'm not going to walk by sight. I'm going to walk by faith. And I stand up to evil by bowing down to God. And just by making a confession of faith. I refuse to walk by sight. I'm going to walk by faith. And so instead of shaking my fist at God, you've you gone, you got a lot of explaining to do. I can shake my fist at the devil. Resist the devil, submit yourselves therefore to God. We're told there in verse, thir- thir- uh, verse 2 that the characteristic of the righteous is that they wait on God. They turn to God in times of calamity. For they know him to be gracious and kind. And unless you can do that, you're going to, get, you're going to be stuck you're going to be down on the floor of the ring. The count's going on. One, two, three, four, a thousand and four, a thousand. You're going to be down for the longest time until your soul can come into verse 2. Until you can truly believe and confess and delight in the things of verse 2. You're going to be down on the floor of the ring. Not good to anybody for anything when it comes to the things of God. Destruction and treacherously will come your way, and then they'll go away because God set a limit on it. But salvation never comes to an end. It never comes to an end. And if you're not looking up to God, the punch will come. It'll take you out. It'll take you down. Because, listen, if you're only looking at what's happening to you and looking around at who did it to you, you're not looking up. Oh, look what's happened to me. And my ex-husband, my ex-wife, my ex-friend, my ex-employee, my ex-box, my neighbor, my former parent, whatever it is. Look what they did to me. And the focus is what's happening to you, the punch you took. Did you see what they did to me? My dad never loved me. My mom never breastfed me. My, you know, my, my siblings, they rejected me, and I can't believe it, and I've been abandoned, and all this. Look what's happening to me, and who did it to me? You're stuck in verse 1. You're still down on the floor, and you've been there for years. And you're wondering why no one's taking up your cause, taking up an offense for you, why you can't get up. It's because, verse 2, you've not waited on God to be gracious to you, to be your strength every morning, your salvation, also in times of distress. God has put a leash, evil on a leash. This is true of the story of Peter. Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. I prayed for you, though. Evil is on a leash. Assyria was on a leash with all of their power. It was on a leash. Evil was on a leash. But salvation, every morning it's new. And into eternity, it's fresh. So, if you're only looking down at what's happening to you and looking around at who's doing it to you, 
You have, oil, you have ashes instead of beauty. You have mourning instead of the oil of joy. And God would bring you into verse 2. God would bring you to that place where uh, he gives you beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, where you're waiting upon him, you're confessing his name. So the first thing is to look up, uh, to worship God. You stand up to evil by bowing down to God. The second thing is to look ahead. Have a good theology. Know that God will use evil in your life uh, to bring about his purposes. He says there in verse 2, Lord, be gracious to us. We've waited for you. You're our salvation uh, in times of distress. We know, we know that the destroyer, you, you, intended him to, you intended him to be a disciplinarian. He intended to destroy. And so you've put him on a leash and you said no more. He, he, he said he was going to do A, but he did B. He's acting treacherously. He betrayed us. But Lord, we look, we look to you. We know that you can use the evil uh, Assyrian Empire to bring about your purposes in our life. So have, have good theology. Turn to the first book in the Bible, the last chapter of the first book. Genesis chapter 50. Probably a familiar story to most of you. But check out verse um, 15. We know that Joseph's brothers hated him, sold him into slavery, and we know the story, and eventually he's exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh, and his brothers and his father come down to Egypt to take refuge in the shadow of Joseph. <clears throat> but then uh, Isaac, their father, dies. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full? for all the wrong which we did to him. For they betrayed him and sent him into years and years of hell, basically. So they sent a message to Joseph. And they said, Dad said, don't kill us. <laughs> Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And then his brothers also came and fell down at his feet before him and said, Behold, we're your servants. Meaning, don't kill us. We're your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? I'm, I'm not in the place of God to take your life. You know, life and death belong to the Lord. They don't belong to me. And then uh, that famous verse 20. As for you, you did mean evil against me. When you threw me into the pit and sold me to sin, you meant evil against me. You wanted me to suffer. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. Joseph says, you did it to me but God did something in me that he might do something through me. No, no, notice the difference here. The brothers said, we did this to Joseph. And he's going to be bitter about what we did to him. But, but Joseph said, okay, you, know, you, you did this to me and you meant evil. You wanted me to suffer. But look at what God has done in me and through me. 
He wasn't man-focused. He was focused on God. He wasn't in verse 1 looking at the destruction and the treachery that had come his way. He's in verse 2. God, you're my salvation every day, every morning. God, you've been so gracious to me. And that's where he's camped, and that's where his soul is. His soul's in verse 2. His brothers are are, are, uh, in verse 1 and thinking about what they did to him. But the, the focus of Joseph is on what God has done through me and not what you did to me. And if your focus is on what people have done to you, your ex-wife, your ex-husband, your ex-friend, your ex-pastor, your ex-whoever, and not what God has intended that to do in you, that he might do something through you, your soul's not in a healthy place. Joseph's soul was in a beautiful place. He was so God-focused. God did this in me and through me. Um, I I want us to notice uh, some of the contrast between Job and Jesus. So let's get, yeah, there's, there's Job and Jesus up there. Jesus knew that whatever happened to him was only to further what was to happen through him. He knew that what happened to him was only to further what was to happen through him. Uh, We're told there in Hebrews chapter 12, he despised the cross, endured the shame for the joy that was what? Set before him. He was looking ahead. Did you know Jesus had some good theology? (laughs) Jesus had great theology. He knew that God could take the evil that touched him and use it in his life to bring about the purpose of God. Of course he knew that. That's what the cross was all about. I have one of my favorite meditations is the self-consciousness of Jesus. When did he know that he was the Son of God, that he was Messiah? How, how far back did the shadow of the cross, I know it was over his whole life, but when did it touch his knowing mind? Um, I don't think, you know, at one minute old, he said, hi Mary, I'm the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. You know, I don't, think, I don't think that, you know. But when did he know? Obviously by age 12, right? Yeah. Did you not know I had to be about my father's business? But I wonder how that, how that happened inside of him. And then that, that, that knowledge, that consciousness, it, it, it was the grid, it was the filter for all that happened to him. Because he knew that what happened to him wasn't the final word. All that happened to him was so that uh, stuff might happen through him. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father on high. We're told there in Psalm 66, bless God all our people and, and uh, sing his praise abroad. Uh, you, you made us ride through water and through fire. You laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. Um, you made us dis- to despair. But you brought us out into a place of abundance. And even though we went through fire and through water and you laid an oppressive burden upon us, we know that you're going to bring us through. And jo- Jesus had that consciousness. He knew that for the joy s- set before him. See, Job... Job had no such understanding at all. All Job could see 
was what was happening to him. That's all he knew. He had no understanding of the cosmic audience of this bet, this wager between God and Satan. He was totally unaware of that. Even at the end of the book, he was totally unaware of it. God never explained that to him. Not only was he not aware of the cosmic audience, he had no idea of the historic audience that would stretch out for millennia. Some say that Job is the first book written in the Bible, and some would say it's the first book written in all of world history. It's the very first piece of literature in, in, in all of time. He had no idea of the historic audience that was stretching out in front of him, nor of the cosmic audience that he had uh, above him. Um, we all talk about the faith and the patience of Job until you get to chapter 3. And then he just falls apart. Oh God, why wasn't I a miscarriage? Uh, why didn't you kill me when I was born? Oh, you know, curse these eyes that have seen the light of day. And he goes on and on and on. Because all he can think is about what's happened to him. Look what's happened to me. I've been stripped of my, my, uh, my family, my servants, my wealth, my health, my reputation. And this, this isn't right. This isn't right. This isn't right. And he charges God with fault quite a few times through the book of Job. There's a, there's a few high places. I quoted one to you, Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. But then he went right back into complaining and griping and muttering and bemoaning his existence and blaming God for everything, everything in his life. He was focused on what was happening to him. Job basically said, God is doing this to me, and I resent it. And he charges God with fault. He charges God with injustice. He says that God is wrong for what he's doing to me. And we, we blame his friends for a lot of their goofy theology, but they had some things right. They were right to rebuke Job for some of the stuff uh, that he said. And some of you, you're like Job this morning. You're stuck in the same place Job is stuck. Um, your, soul of, your soul is full of ashes, full of mourning, and your grief has become your grave. And that's where you've been stewing uh, for the longest time. See, if your only horizon is what is being done to you, and you don't have the perspective of what God wants to do through you, you're going to be stuck, just like Job was. And Job was stuck. He couldn't get out of it until God met with him in one of the most powerful encounters between God and man in the Bible, uh, back there in chapters 41 or 42 of the book of Job. Incredible stuff. Um, Job was stripped of his health, his wealth, his family, his servants, uh, his reputation. But one thing he wasn't stripped of was his self-righteousness. And the whole book is him harping on his self-righteousness and how he doesn't deserve this. And finally, at the end of the book, God shows up and strips Job of his self-righteousness. God shows up and talks to Job, and Job says, you know, 
I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. God, I've heard about you. I've heard some good stuff about you. But now my eye sees you. And I repent in sackcloth and ashes. And I retract everything I've said. That's powerful. And then he was able to move on. Because he was stuck for 40 chapters. <laughs> and some of you have been stuck. Filled with self-pity. so Filled with self-righteousness. Because so-and-so did it to you. And you can't get over that. Is it possible that God wants to do something through you? Just like Daniel, just like Joseph, just like Jesus, just like eventually Job here in, in, in the Bible. Um, you're stuck like Job and you're as miserable as Job. And Job thought himself as the victim. You know, it's, it's very sexy today to be a victim. It's not in the Bible. Okay, I don't, I don't want to be a 21st century Christian. I want to be a Bible Christian, <laughs> you know. And what, what so many Christians accept today is normal. Uh, uh, just flips the Bible upside down. Um, uh, the, the victim mentality, the, the card that so many people play today, if you knew the God, if you knew the God of Calvary, if you knew the God of the whole universe, you wouldn't play that card because you'd be the victor, not the victim. Even though all of this stuff, everybody here, everybody has a story. Well, not you, Tim. You're a pastor. You've been a pastor for 50 years. I got a story. I got a few stories of how destruction and treachery has touched my life and, and how we've, Fran and I, we've taken punches in our 46 years almost 47 years of marriage. And God, we're still on our feet. Because God, not that we've always kept on our feet, God's picked us up, you know, a, a few times, but, but God has been gracious. Uh, I just, I, but I don't want to be stuck and wallow in self-pity and think that I have the right to play the victim card. And you'll have people who play the violin for you today, but it won't be Jesus playing for his violin, you know. Uh, he'll be back there going, knock it off, you know. God wants to take you somewhere. Um, so Job thought of himself as the victim through the whole entire book until he looked up and, and, and he stood up to evil by bowing down to God and he looked ahead at what God wanted to do and he got some good theology. God can even use this to further his purposes in my life. One last passage to look at, 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Second Corinthians chapter 1, uh, check out verse 3. Paul is talking about his uh, being an apostle and the stuff that's happened to him. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, who comforts us whenever destruction and treachery have touched our lives, so that we will be able to comfort those uh, who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, if we've been touched with destruction and treachery, it's for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort 
which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings with which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers in our suffering, so also are you sharers in uh, um, our comfort. So Paul would say this, that God is doing a work in me that he might do a work through me. See, Paul knew how to take a punch. He refused to be a victim. He would not have his grief be his grave. He refused uh, to, to focus on what was happening to him. And, and destruction, you just read the book of Acts. There was treachery against him. There was destruction that came his way. His t- life was touched by so many things, but he refused. It's not that they didn't touch him. I mean, he took a hit. And if he ever was on the mat, he got up again. But he refused to focus on what would happen to him. Because if that's all it is, you're just a victim. You're just down on the mat. You're being counted out. But Paul learned how to take a punch. If you don't look up, if you don't look ahead, your misery will turn you into a victim. Your grief will become a grave for you. But Paul here, he turned his misery into ministry. That's what he says there. Um, Verse 5, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours, that's my misery in abundance, so also our comfort is uh, abundant through Christ. And if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And Paul goes, man, this hurts so bad. Oh, but I'm going to be able to, to minister to someone who's going through this. I'm going to be able to touch someone's life who's been touched by this. Uh, I've never been divorced. Um, and I've, I've been able to minister to people who are divorced. But when there is a person who's been divorced, e- even if they're to blame for it, I think there are some innocent parties in divorce. Um, but even if they were the jerk, if you would, um, but God brought them to a place of repentance, God can use them so much more powerfully, I believe, than me. Because they've gone through it. And there's some ex-felons in the church and drug addicts and alcoholics, all that kind of stuff. And, and when there's someone who knows, I mean, I did some drugs. I, I grew up in L.A. during the 60s and 70s, so I did all that kind of stuff back then. But I was never an addict. I was never a head um, uh, I was never a hippie. My parents wouldn't let me grow my hair long, and I couldn't sit cross-legged on the floor. I just have flexibility issues. And gonna, <laughs> don't ask me anymore, okay? But, uh, uh, but I, so I, I was never a hard guy. I had a couple of fights. I was never a hard guy. I wasn't in gangs, wasn't a druggie, wasn't an I just I was nothing. Uh, but, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I know, though, that people who have been Dark and deep in those things, who have been in bondage in those things, God can use them so powerfully in the lives of other people. He turned his ministry, he turned his misery into ministry. He turned his misery into medicine. Some of you can speak so powerfully into people's lives because your misery, God has made it into medicine. He turned his grief uh, into gold. And so, how do you take a punch? Just from verses, uh, verse two here. Look up. Worship God, you stand up to evil by bowing down to God. And, and um, look ahead. Just have good theology that God can take the evil in your life. 
and he can use it for his purposes. The evil that's touching your life is not the final word. The grave was not the final word for Jesus. And so Hezekiah in our passage, he's going to learn. He learned how to take a punch. Uh, he, he took it to the Lord. And he, he stayed on his feet. And even though he might have fell down, he, he got back up. And so may the Lord, though you might be in the mat right now, may you come into the things of verse 2. God, you're so gracious. You're going to use even this. And may the Lord, may the Lord, may the Lord raise you up. Um, you know, Jesus, he, perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God, and yet he took the greatest punch of all history, of all eternity. And there he found himself on the cross. And he suffered, he bled, and he died for you and me. He counted him out. You're out. They had to carry him from the ring. Joseph of Arimathea did it, and uh, Nicodemus, and put them in Air, uh, Joseph's tomb. They knew that he was dead. Uh, down for the count. But we know what happened three days later, don't we? Uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, so Satan landed the Calvary punch, but then Jesus landed the, uh, the resurrection punch. And Christ arose never to be, never to die again. And so here it was uh, sin and, and death and grave and hell and the devil, all against Jesus. Uh, when I was growing up, I used to watch the... Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant and uh, uh, Hacksaw Jim Dunnigan and somebody, the gentleman, somebody. Anyway, they all fighting in the ring there and sometimes it was tag team and sometimes it would be two against one and then another guy would jump in, you know, three against one and all this theatrics going on. It was five against one with Jesus. Sin, hell, grave, death, and the devil. And, and Jesus just tore them all up. And Christ rose from the dead, having defeated sin, death, hell, grave, and the devil. All five of those, in and of themselves, would be able to wipe out all of us. And they have wiped out all of us. But Jesus conquered all of the enemies that have conquered humankind. And Jesus is king. And it's possible that you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning. I want to give you an opportunity to confess Christ as your Savior this morning. Paul the Apostle said that if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. And it's possible you've never made that good confession before. And are we being live-streamed? You at home, it's possible that some of you have never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and made the good confession. If you'd like to do that this morning, I'd love to lead you in a prayer of doing that. Would you please stand just right where you're at? And by doing that, you're saying, Pastor Tim, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to pray. I want to confess Christ as Lord. I do believe that God raised him from the dead. I do believe and want to confess that Jesus is Lord. Is there anybody here? You need to do that. You want to do that. The Holy Spirit is telling you to do that. You at home, you can stand up and you can confess the same thing. But I want to pray this prayer. And if you're at home, you need to pray this. Pray this after me. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I know that I'm a sinner and I know I need Jesus. 
Jesus, come and forgive me. Jesus, come and cleanse me. Jesus, fill me with the Holy Spirit. I confess that God raised Jesus from the dead. And I confess that Jesus is my Lord. Jesus, give me power to live for you every day. And I'll live my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer at home, please contact this ministry, and they would love to be in contact with you. Well, we're going to have a time of communion. And um, you know the routine here, that once the worship starts, you can come up and take the uh, communion kit, go back to your chair, and commune with the Lord uh, as you would. And there'll be a prayer team in the back there. But we're told on the night he was betrayed that our Lord took bread, and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat it, all of you. And in the same fashion, he took the cup. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sins. Take and drink it, all of you. So Jesus, thank you that uh, you despised the shame. Uh, you endured the cross for the joy that was set before you. And so, Lord, as we partake of you this morning, May your joy, your strength, your power, your grace, your mercy become ours. And we ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.